All right, if I could have everybody's attention. I see we're going to have to cut out. We're going to have to cut out the eating another 15 minutes earlier, so you get your last coffee and everything and get down here. And uh, see here, stragglers coming in. You can leave it open. I think there's. Uh, I think we have a few more that are going to be coming in. Yeah. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the uh, third week in our in our marriage series class. Before we get started, I would like to introduce a very special guest, and she's sitting up in the front row here. This is my mom. Jan Albright. And as you remember, last, last week I talked about over 50 years of marriage. So she knows what unconditional love is and what selfless love is. So if you have any questions about how to make it those 50 years, see her afterwards. Okay? Uh, another, another guest I'd like to introduce, right behind her is my sister, Marty, and her friend, and her friend, Craig. Yes, twin sister, and no, we're not identical twins, okay? Yeah, thank you. All right, I didn't need that from the peanut gallery, okay? And uh, speaking of, uh, of Marty attends uh, New Faith Chapel, and that, by the way, is where we're having the marriage, the marriage vow renewal ceremony. Marty's going to be helping with decorations and getting things set up there, so thank her for that. Um, every week, you know by now, I've started out with some pretty intense story. And I've had a few of you on the edge of your seats, some, a few gullible people. I'm not pointing at anybody <laughs> on the edge of their seats. And then I drop the bomb on you, and it's a joke. All right? Well, I, I'm not going to fake you out today. I got a joke. All right? I'm not going to try to fake you out at all. I couldn't find another story that I could grip you with. So here's my joke before we start. There was a uh, couple buddies that were fishing in a canoe boat, and they were actually fishing up underneath a bridge. And uh, one guy looked up and he saw a funeral procession driving by up on the bridge. So he instantly put his rod and reel down, he took off his fishing hat, stood up, and he bowed his head in a moment of silence. After about a minute and a half, two minutes, the, uh, the funeral procession was gone and out of sight. He sat back down without saying a word, picked up his fishing rod, started fishing again. Well, his buddy looked at him and said, wow, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. I didn't even know you had a sense of the side like that. And the guy responded and said, well, you know, that was the least I could do. After all, I was married to her for 30 years. <laughs> all right. That's it for the jokes. All right, today's... Uh, I heard that. All right, today's lesson that we're going over is a lesson called Love for a Lifetime. And the burning question that we're going to ask today and we're trying to, try to uh, understand is, do you understand the covenant nature of your marriage vows? Um... You know, we live in a world today that if you ask that question, the, the obvious answer is no. You know, the world does not understand the seriousness and the, and the commitment that you are to make before God and before your spouse in marriage. And, you know, in today's society, they just don't put a whole lot of, of uh, a stock in marriage, do they? It's, it's either take it or leave it. And that's the philosophy of the world today. Uh, did you realize that 60% of men believe that divorce is morally acceptable? 60%. Now, when I looked at the statistics for women, you would think it was less, and I was actually shocked. 78% of women think that divorce is morally acceptable. Now, obviously, we're, talking, we're not talking about Christian women. We have a different value system, all right, and a different belief. But some of the stats I want to go over real quickly is just to show you how desensitized our society is on marriage and how it's really just not that important. It's just something to do. Um, 
the amount of people that make it to their fifth wedding anniversary, married, been married five years, is not too bad. 82%, 8 out of 10 people actually make it to five years of marriage. But it gets pretty sad after that. It, drops, it drastically drops. Uh, if you make it to 15 years of marriage, you're only in half of the population. 52% make it to 15 years of marriage. How many in the room have, have got to 15 years? Congratulations. You are only, you are 50% of the people that get married that are still at it. Now, it drastically drops after that. Uh, 35 years of marriage, it drops down to 2 in 10. 20% of the people make it to 35 years of marriage. And then my mom is in a league all her own, standing all by herself, which is very few people. Because if you make it to 50 years of marriage, you're only in the top 5% of people that ever get married. To the same man. To the same man, yes. Good point. <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you can see that, again, society just doesn't put a whole lot of stock in marriage. In fact, it's, it, they don't think about it so much that over 5 million people in the United States just live together. Five million people, people say that it's not even worth going to the altar and spending money and giving vows and signing that contract or that covenant because it's hard to get out of it. It costs money. All right? So let's just live together. If it doesn't work out, then we can just go our separate ways. Five and a half million people. All right? And this, uh, this last stat was from 2007, but it shows you the devastation that divorce actually has on, on the United States. 2.2 million people got married in 2007. 2.2 million people in the United States. During that same period, almost, well, a little over 1 million people got divorced. Almost half of the people that, now they're not the same people that got married and then divorced, but during that same period, a million people got divorced, just wanted to end their marriage. Now, obviously, again, as I said, these statistics don't reflect Christian marriages. However, don't be, don't be deceived. Right? Our Christian marriages still go through the same struggles that any other marriage goes through. We still, have, we still have the same problems of communication. You might be married, but you still might not know how to deal with situations that come up in your marriage through communication. Uh, you still have the temptations that any other couple have. The temptations of the world now are tenfold compared to when my mom and my dad got married and then my grandparents were married. The amount of temptation that's out there every day as soon as you turn on the TV, as soon as you look at the billboard, as soon as you talk to some, a coworker at work, everything. It's tenfold. Those pressures are still on your marriages. All right? Just because we're Christians, just because we meet here on Sundays, doesn't mean you're immune to the problems that happen during the week. And I would suggest that Christian marriages go through what I call an emotional divorce or a psychological divorce, where... You're still married. No, you have not signed on that dotted line and dissolved the marriage which God is intended to be a lifetime, but you are living two separate lives in the same house, and I would suggest that that still is a separation that God does not desire for your marriage. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So what I want to do next is I want to look at the video clip because uh, the video clip you're going to about to see is uh, Caleb the firefighter talking to his friend who is also a firefighter, Michael. And pay close attention to the differences between how they view their marriages. 100% different, totally different on how they view their marriage.
Is that okay? contrasts on their belief in marriage, is it not? That's what we want to talk about right now and uh, in a little bit of discussion, as you saw on the clip. What, um, what are some of the things that Caleb is saying about his marriage? Anybody? Just want to throw some things out that you saw on the clip? War zone. War zone, yeah. Yes, it's a conditional love that they're putting on their marriage. Did he not say that uh, they were once in love? Yep but now they're two totally different people and they've fallen out of love, correct? What kind of love is he talking about? We talked about it last week. What kind of love is he talking about? And I described it at the end when I gave my testimony, what Michelle and I had at the very beginning, we thought we could get to anything. What kind of love? Emotional love. That love that uh, is natural at the very beginning and you can take on the world, can you not? And you can, you can hurdle any situation that comes in your path except once you say, I do, and once the real process begins in the marriage and the real things start coming out and you really find out what that person's like, then that, then that emotional love, that's hard to live on. Okay? Um, what else? Uh, let's let's turn, our, turn our attention to Michael now. What does Michael say about his marriage? What, is, what are his views on marriage? Anybody? A lifelong covenant. A lifelong covenant, yes. 
the illustration when he put the salt and pepper shakers together, what was he describing? What did he say? You may remember? Yes. And while he was doing that, he said marriage, it's for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. What is the world view? How does the world view marriage? For better, for richer, and if nothing's going on, if nothing happens, we'll be okay. I'll love you to death. Until something happens, then we're in trouble. All right? And that's really, I mean, that's, in a nutshell, that's the way the world and certain people look at their marriage. Because of that, there's a lot of things that come up in your marriage. Again, we talked about little problems. If you don't know how to deal with them, emotions run high, do they not? Emotions do, do, uh, are difficult when, um, when you don't know how to deal with them. And some couples rationalize and defend poor decisions that are made. How does Caleb, in the, in the clip here, rationalize getting divorced? Anybody remember? Yep. And what is he doing when he says it's not my fault? He's blame shifting from Mark 6, correct? And he's, he's forgetting that he's just as much at fault. He's forgetting that you don't look to your partner and, and blame them for, what, for the problems. God says you look at yourself. You fix yourself, and you don't worry about your partner. That's what true selfless love is. Regardless of what your spouse is doing or is not doing in the marriage, you still have to do what God says is right in your life. And he is not doing that. Of course, at this point in the film, he doesn't know what true God's true love is. So he is basing all his emotions on his emotional love that he has, and he's trying to fix the marriage on his own. And we've seen in the past weeks that that's just impossible. You can't do that. Um, you know, again, he, uh, he also... He also blame, you know, he blames her. What else does he do? Uh, he says that sometimes you just get burned. You know? you know, you go into a marriage and sometimes you just get burned. What does he mean? Does anybody want to take a stab at what he means by that? Yeah, yeah, sometimes people change. You know, if you try and it doesn't work, get out, just like in a fire. You know, just get out. It was a mistake. Sometimes marriages are a mistake. Well, no, they're not, according to God. Once you make that lifelong commitment to that spouse, it is for a lifetime. See, as I stated last week, one of the big problems in new marriages, and that doesn't affect too many people here, but new marriages are revolve around that emotional love. And once you find out about that person and those qualities that you fall in love with change, so does your love for that person. Again, if your love is based on your spouse's qualities, what they're good at. And then over time, we all change. So over time, those qualities change or disappear. Then so does your love. Your love would disappear and change also. All right? And that's what we're talking about here. What does God want us to do? He wants us to love unconditionally and love selfishly. That's what a covenant is. That's what we want to talk about next. A covenant, a covenant is a lifetime commitment. So we want to look at the differences between a covenant and a contract. Because many couples look at a marriage as a 50-50 contract. The husbands, you know, the husbands will do what they, what they need to do in the marriage so long as the wife's doing what she's supposed to be doing. And what, what do you do when you're, when you're doing that? What are we putting on the marriage? Conditions. Correct. And love is unconditional. But we're putting conditions on our spouse and saying, you know what, I'll work on what I need to work out, but I want to see you working on what you're supposed to be working on. And I don't want to have to work any harder than you are. We should be working equal. Because that's not fair. If I'm working at it and trying to make this marriage work, but you're not. That's directly contrary to what the Bible says. 
as directly contrary to what we've been teaching for the last three weeks about selfless love. You do what you are supposed to do, what you know you're supposed to do, regardless of whether your, your husband or your wife also goes along with the program. Okay? And that's what, that's what a contract is. It's, it, put, it puts conditions on our marriage. Contract usually is a written agreement, and it's based on distrust, and it outlines conditions if, and consequences if it's broken. Uh, that's what a prenuptial is. I always find it very funny, and most prenuptials are for the rich and famous uh, sports figures, guys with a lot of money, and you'll see them on TV. I love this, I love this girl with that. She's my soulmate. But I don't love her enough to trust her, so she needs to sign right here. And if she does what? Conditions. If she does this, this, if she's unfaithful or this, then she doesn't get a dime. And she's out. All right? Is that, is that a covenant? Is that true love? No. That is a contract. You're putting conditions on your love. I always find that funny when you hear that and see that in uh, people that have a lot of money. Uh, and what are contracts? They're, they're made to be broken. Both, both parties can sign on the dotted line and dissolve that contract and walk away. No harm done, so to speak. But a covenant is different. And that's what... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a covenant is different. All right? A covenant is from God. And it says it's, it's not selfish. It says, I give myself to you and I commit to this marriage for life. A covenant is intended to be unbreakable. All right? And the dictionary defines the word as a solemn agreement a pledge or a promise that you're giving to someone. A covenant is a verbal agreement that's based on trust, assuring your partner that what you're saying to them is, is for a lifetime and you're not going to break it. And it's unconditional. That's what the covenant that you're giving to your spouse. You know what? It's also, I think a lot of times we forget at the altar, we're not only giving that promise to our spouse who's standing next to us, who right in, at that moment we're in this emotional overflowing love situation because that's what it's designed for but we're making that commitment to God we're making a promise to God to do this and do we want to break our promises to God no we don't and I think you know I believe with all the hoopla and all the many details that go into a marriage into the actual wedding day what's the one thing that usually is lost in translations lost that's the marriage vows in fact I think a lot of people actually go to the altar not knowing what actually is going to be said, that's why the, the pastor or preacher or whoever says, you need to repeat after me. And there's only about three, three, three words total because you don't want to miss it. You haven't gone over it before, so you have no idea what you're going to say. That should be probably the most important thing. I mean, what are all the details that go into that day? And why I'm not going to, I don't want to purposely pick on you, but because of our society and our culture, the, the actual wedding, the marriage day, is designed for the wife. It is her special day. Everything that goes into it for months and months and months ahead of time is built up for this one day because if it's not done perfectly, your marriage might not last for 30 years. All right? <laughs> what, what's so important during that day? Well, your wedding dress is important, the bridesmaid dresses, depending on the type of the, the, the season, is the, the, the color that you're going to pick for the, you know, for the uh, dresses. And, of course, the guys, the cummerbund and the, the bow tie have to match the dresses because if that happens, your marriage probably will last, right? <laughs> right? What else is so important? Well, the invitations. Months and months go up ahead of time. You're looking at those invitations. You've probably spent weeks going over hundreds of different invitations and the type of letterhead that's going to be and what you're going to send to people and the words that are going to be on there to just invite people to, for the wedding because 
Those words are so very important, aren't they? Because if they're right and the people come, your marriage is going to be okay. Right? No. I'm being very sarcastic. What else goes into this very important day? Oh, you've got your wedding cake. You've got the flowers. Who are you going to... Who are, what relative are you not going to invite to the wedding? All right, because they're going to cause a scene. All these important questions, do they have anything to do with how your marriage is going to end up? No. What did I leave out? Well, yeah. <laughs> left out the group. What, what important part did I leave out in speaking with the covenant? We left out the marriage vows. The most important thing in your marriage is that covenant that you make with your spouse and to God. Again, a covenant is to be unbreakable. And God is our example of how to carry out a covenant. And there are several examples in the Bible of God making a covenant with his people and carrying it out. And thus giving us the all-important example, the perfect example of how serious God takes a covenant that we take with our spouse. It's not just something that we can just flippantly say. All right, and uh, without going through chapter and verse because of time, I want to just give you a couple of examples. All right, so you understand that God always, when He instructs you to do something, He always gives you an example to go by. He does just—he doesn't throw something out there blindly that you just got to lead by faith. He gives examples. God made a covenant with Noah, did He not? Promising never again to destroy the earth with a flood. And we see through Scripture, we also see through science that He has fulfilled that promise. He never has again. Uh, he's never flooded the earth. Welcome. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he promised an entire nation of descendants would, uh, would come through his family line. And we see that God fulfilled that promise. We see through Scripture that Abraham's descendants go right through King David, right all the way to Christ, who was born, and ultimately paid the, the penalty for our sin, which is all important. Uh, that's why we are able to have that assurance of salvation. And God fulfilled that uh, covenant. He ultimately, well, he also fulfilled the covenant with David, promising that a ruler would sit on his throne forever. Obviously talking about Christ the King, now who is now sitting in the right hand of God right now as we speak as our intercessor, so that we have direct communication with God. Without that, without that covenant that he made and, and showing David, King David, we would not be able to be able to, to speak directly with God and he can answer our prayers. We have Christ sitting in the right hand of God. And then ultimately, the ultimate covenant that was made, which is the new covenant through Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that he made on the cross, this covenant, the most important one ever, establishes the forgiveness of sins and eternal life for anybody who believes in Christ. All these covenants, and there are many, many more, but I don't have time to keep going into them, all these, never once did God break his promise or his covenant with his people. And now, the marriage covenant, the most important covenant on earth between a man and a woman. The pledge of a man and a woman to love, honor, cherish, and respect each other for what? For better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, for all the days of your life. There are no stipulations on the marriage. That's what it is. It's for a lifetime, and it's to love unconditionally. Unfortunately, in today's society, that doesn't happen. Right? And, again, as I said at the beginning, we take only parts of that vow that we take, and if there's problems in the marriage, then we might want out because we don't, we don't want to try to weather the storm and with God's help. 
let's see what God says about this solemn vow that we take. If somebody or anybody can turn to Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5. We want to take a look at what God says about this covenant that we've taken. And whoever gets to it first, if you don't mind, um, if you could just read that out loud, verse 4 and 5. Yeah, go ahead, Tony. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools to fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Wow, very, very uh, interesting words. You know, God talks about our vow that we make. And the vow is to be unconditional. And it's to be for a lifetime. We're not only making the vow to our spouse, but we're making it to God, the commitment to God. Remember I talked about last week, God chooses to show his perfect love through us. We can't do it on our own. We can try. We will fail because God is the only true, uh, he's the only God that knows true love, and we get that through him. Um, Therefore, by taking these marriage vows, we're, we're promising God and our spouses that we will love unconditionally. What does the verse say that Tony read about the person that breaks this covenant or this vow? What does God say about him? Yes. What else does he say? Pretty strong word he uses for the person. Calls him a fool. All right, now we see in Genesis that God designed man. Man was lonely. He wanted a helpmate. God designed a woman so they could be compatible. All right, totally different people. God made it that way. We are compatible. And we are to go through life as one. That's the way God designed us. But God says, as much as I want that for you, I would rather you not get married. I would rather you not make that commitment and that covenant if you don't intend to keep it for a lifetime. That's how strongly he feels about this. Um, and uh, what, you know, what else does he say? Uh, again, calling us a fool. He does not delight in fools who make a vow and then break it. All right? Very strong words. And that applies to our marriage. Now, this leads right into, and I could go into divorce, and, um, and you all know my story, and there's uh, others of you in the room who have been in this situation. And I could spend time talking about divorce and how God hates divorce, but we all know that. We know that, he, that divorce is wrong and that it's not the answer. We know that when you divorce someone, you are not only sinning, you're sinning against God, and you're breaking the covenant, as we just talked about. And there are consequences for sin, is there not? Okay, so we all know that. Right? There's no need to spend time on that. But what I would rather do is talk about Christian marriages. And although Christian marriages, most for the most part, would never follow through with a literal divorce and signing those papers. Why? Because of, because of consequences, the fallout from church, the fallout from maybe friends that you have gotten to know, and you don't want to lose those friends. Um, there, there could be many different reasons. But you don't actually divorce, but yet you'll be willing to live all week long as two separate people in your home. And the only time that you're together the way God wants you as one is at church functions or at church because you don't want anybody to know that you're having struggles in your marriage. All right? And these could, I mean, these could be, you know, you're living lives with separate activities and you have separate friends. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you have to spend every waking minute with your spouse. It is great to have separate activities and have fun with friends that your, you, your wife might like to golf, and you like to golf, and that's okay. Your wife might like to do, go, you know, go to a sewing shop, and you, know, you don't want to go sewing with her, 
I don't know why I threw that out there. Yeah. But because um, Michelle doesn't sew. <laughs> but you get my point. If the priority in your life is that though, if your main focus is you want to spend more time with other people, more time with friends and doing other activities and you don't want to include your spouse in that, then I would suggest that that is a separation in your life and that is the breaking the covenant that God has made. What about what else? What about communication and companionship? God again said that this marriage is supposed to be, you're supposed to go through life and life struggles together. Many couples will barely speak or speak just enough to get by to deal with the children and to find out what's going to be uh, for dinner and there is no real communication in the marriage because you've allowed little problems to become giant boulders because you don't know how to deal with things in a correct way. You let selfishness get away, you let anger get in the way and what does that do? It breeds contempt and it makes those small problems into huge boulders and now you have complete loss of communication because this wall has been built up with all these problems that could have been taken care of because they really are small. Alright? You see my point there? Um, what else could happen? What about raising the teamwork and raising your children? God intended you to do it together. Many times in a situation like this, your marriage, you have rules and your spouse has rules for the kids and you don't even communicate with that because there's so much tension and struggle in the marriage. Well, do you believe what I'm talking about? Do you believe there's such a thing without actually signing on a dotted line and divorcing? Do you think you're breaking the marriage covenant by what I just described? Anybody just nodding the yes, yes, am I getting the yes? I do believe that. All right, I believe that mentally and psychologically you can break that covenant with God. Why? Because you are not living in the marriage the way God intended it to be. Well, there's good news. Let's, let's find out what God wants us to do and how he wants us to live in the marriage. Because that's the way that we don't want our marriage to act, right? We do not want a marriage like that, that you can barely stand being in the same room with the person because there's so much tension built up. So if someone turn to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. Yes? This was, uh, this was our actual wedding. Uh, this is a scripture that was read by Kim at our wedding. Oh, excellent. Uh, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Excellent. And uh, talk about self-explanatory. I mean, we talked about last week again how God made two people to be one, to complement each other. And the verse says, two are better than one. Okay? God made it by design that way perfectly. We are complete opposites, men and women. But he did that because we are complementing each other. We are compatible. Where one falls, the other one lifts up. Where one is weak in an area, the other person should be stronger and can help. You're compatible. Uh, one other verse. Let's look at Matthew 19, verse 4 through 6. Actually, a couple verses. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And if somebody could read that. Again, and I've talked about for the last couple weeks, you've heard me make the illustration of two separate people coming together in marriage, acting as one person. All right? Mentally, you're going through life. Emotionally, you're going through problems and situations, highs and lows, together. That's the way God intended it, for two to become one and for nothing to separate that. You know, God designed marriage to be a wonderful thing. And I think a lot of times, because we're Christians and we think, you know, we're not to be of the world, we're not supposed to do anything of the world, and we're, you know, we have to sacrifice 
and we're, uh, you know, we're being punished for our sins, that marriage isn't supposed to be fun. And that's totally wrong. God intended our marriage to be a blast. He intended us uh, working together, living, sharing experiences together, laughing, loving, intimacy, romance, affection, parenthood. He intended you to raise your children together and to enjoy that and to see them grow up the way they're supposed to and enjoy that part of the relationship together, not separate. All by God's design. And he designed it perfectly in the beginning with no struggles and no disappointments and no resentment between the two. But what happened to cause the hiccup in the whole plan? Sin. Sin way back, Adam and Eve's time. And ever since, we do struggle with this selfishness that we have in our own lives and not putting our spouse first. And we, we continue to work on that. We will always struggle with that because that is sin. But God designed it for us to love our spouses unconditionally and, and for a lifetime. And when we fail, remember, we've got to remember this, when we fail in our commitment to our spouse, we are sinning directly against God because we promised him that we would love our spouse no matter what. We didn't say in the vows and we didn't say to God in a prayer that I'll love them only if these certain things happen or I only love them unless... We lose the house, and unless they are, uh, uh, unless I find that they have a problem gambling, and then I'm out of here. It, you could put any number of problems in the equation because do a lot of problems come up in your marriage in a lifetime? Sure, there's an infinite number of a list, and God says it doesn't matter what that list is. You're supposed to love your spouse unconditionally. See, we have to remember that our marriage is not just about you and me, not just two people, Michelle and I. There's three. It's Michelle and me and God. And there's three people always in the marriage and God intended our marriage to be an example to the world of God's glory and his beauty and his unconditional love for us. John 15.9, Jesus said in John 15.9, as the Father has loved, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. And we need to take that to heart. Right? This, Christ has given us the example. God's love to Christ, Christ's love to us. We talked about that last week. His, his overwhelming unselfish love of what he did on the cross and that's our example we are to love that way we are to be an example to the world of what Christian unconditional selfless love is all about and to portray that to the world do you think you're going to get a co-worker to come to church or you're going to get a co-worker to believe or you're going to get to sit down and have a conversation with them about crucial issues in the Bible heaven or hell if they know Every time you come to work, you're complaining about your spouse. And every time you come to work, you're griping and you're down in the dumps, and they say, what's going on? Ugh, you'll never guess what my wife did again. All right? <laughs> that, that is not being a shining example of what God wants us. We are to be an example to the world. So we have a challenge this week for all of us. Right? All of us. It's not a challenge on your own. Sometime this week, I'd like for you to sit down with your spouse whether it's at the dinner table, a lot of times it's tough to find personal time for you and your spouse. Is it not with kids? Find that time. It won't take long, five, ten minutes. And, uh, you know, go duct tape the kids up in the room or something so you have some time. But I want to challenge you. Renew your vows with your spouse right there at the table. Recommit yourselves to your spouse. Remember, we are to love them unconditionally. Ask for forgiveness. If you are in one of those relationships that I spoke about earlier, 
and there's, there's tension there, and there's struggles, and you have not shown selfless love, and you have not committed to the marriage, ask for forgiveness. That's what this class is about. It's about forgiving and moving on and making your marriage better. And it doesn't matter, as I told you last week, you remember at the end, it doesn't matter what you did, it doesn't matter how long you've done it, it doesn't matter if you think you're the worst one here, you're not. God looks at sin, the smallest sin and the greatest sin is sin, and it's, it, it, it makes him upset, and he doesn't like it. And the moment you have sin into your relationship, it breaks down communication, it breaks down the bond between you, your spouse, and God, the three of you. So make it right. Apologize to your spouse. Tell them, him or her, that you are going to work on these things that you need to work on. You are going to love better. You are going to try to love unselfishly. Try to understand their needs. All right? And write, everybody write this down. 1 Corinthians 13, specifically 4 through 8. I want you to read that. All right? The love chapter. This explains everything that you need for a successful marriage. All right? Not everything. This is a good basis. I should let me clarify that. That's a good basis. 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about the love that we need. All right? Again, and real quickly, you know, love never fails. Love is not envious. Love is kind. All right? Look back at some of your arguments you've had recently. Was your love kind to your spouse when you went through that? No, it wasn't. So now you're going against Scripture and you're disobeying a God again. And I don't want to believe it. I don't want to make it a negative point that we're all sitting here and we just disobey God every day of our lives. That's not what the intention is. What I want to do is make you make you realize and make it right in the front of your brain, all right, that every time you do something contrary to Scripture that hurts your spouse, you're not only hurting them, but you're hurting God, okay? And I challenge you to make that commitment this week, talk to each other, and start living the marriage the way God intended it to be. And it's supposed to be fun, and it's supposed to be joyous and good, and it's not supposed to be filled with all kinds of struggles, okay? Again, right to the limit, right to the end. And uh, let's have, uh, could I have one volunteer just to pray for this week that we can meet this challenge as a couple, find some time in our busy schedules to sit down and recommit our marriage to one another.